0: Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born into a military family and from a young age rebelled against a conventional upbringing. As a sporty teenager, she founded the Sisterhood, a group of girls who would raise money to complete extreme sports challenges, such as rowing across the Channel and running ultramarathons in the Sahara. Working in PR, she began promoting sex parties, but soon it became clear to her how male-dominated the industry was. So she found her own brand, Killing Kittens, a sexually liberated social network where women come first. Since then, the company has taken off and British taxpayers even have a stake in it after it won support from a government fund. The business has 180,000 members in 12 countries and an annual turnover of 1.4 million. My guest goes by the line, he asked me what's my favourite position. I said CEO. My guest today is Emma Sale. Emma, thank you for joining uh, us on the podcast today. To begin, we always ask the same question, which is, was yours a happy childhood?
1: Yeah, very happy, very happy childhood. I've, yeah, boarding, 10 years of boarding school and moved all over the world and I loved it. <laughs>
0: and yeah you mentioned there that you moved country as uh, multiple times so where can you talk us through uh, some of the highlights of the places you got to see um at a young age
1: well we moved when i was 12 we moved in the summer of 1989 um moved to berlin and what happened in the autumn of 1989 the berlin Wall came down so um that was fascinating because dad was sort of the head of allied the we went over there's the allied staff uh, for the british side but then became the um chief liaison officer um so yeah, we had a lot of Russians in our house after that which yeah was really interesting um and I'd I'd go and with a hammer and yeah chop off loads of bits of the Berlin Wall and pack up my suitcase and um flog them back Del Boy style back in England at boarding school I went back with sort of yeah Russian army hats and Berlin Wall chunks and yeah that's brilliant a bit money okay, I was <laughs> gonna
0: say did you sell them or do you use it kind of just to be like the coolest person at school?
1: Oh, no, I totally sold it. I um, totally sold them and, yeah, fleeced my, like, rich boarding school mates. Then, yeah, and then we were in Egypt. So we lived in the middle of Cairo for four years, which was amazing. And that was sort of my teenage teenage years. And just, yeah, smoking shisha and playing chess and backgammon in the streets and markets of Cairo with my parents losing me the whole time. Um, and, you know, riding camels out in the desert and horses and going for sundowners, looking over the pyramids. It's, yeah, it's crazy when you... Looking at it like that, and then we were out in Kuwait throughout university. Um, but Dad was a defense attaché, so that was sort of when Saddam Hussein and like Bush number two started playing silly buggers again. So all the tornado, our house was always full of like tornado pilots, <laughs> which being like a hormonal yeah university student it was really good fun um so um yeah so lots of fun places and obviously
0: as you mentioned your boarding school um I wonder then was it when you obviously visiting all these really interesting places and then you go to your boarding school did it all seem a bit
1: sedate yeah there was always and I look back now and it kind of I think at the time, you know, I had, you know, I was like quite insecure and sort of, you don't feel like, I felt like I didn't fit in to a group. So, you know, I did everything from sports to the, the, you know, to the plays, the school plays and everything. And I was a real maths and science geek. So I kind of did everything and kind of was friends with all the different, you know, sectors that you have, you know, all the different groups. But i would always kind of, I was a bit insecure and like, you have not feeling like I fitted in. To one group but actually sort of the older I've got and the more you you know you read stuff and about business people and that, that outsider's mindset you know that's why a lot you know most of the you know the CEOs of FTSE 100 companies out in the states and stuff are actually are uh, you know from refugees or immigrants and um and have an outsider's mindset where you don't where you feel like you're looking in to the environment you're living in you don't feel necessarily like you belong in that environment so I think at the time you feel now it's a blessing looking back at it. But at the time, I think as a teen, you know, insecure teenage girl, you kind of that, yeah, brings up a whole heap of of problems. But looking back at it, I think it's just, you know. Made me who I am and do what I do, so without caring. (laughs) And
0: uh, yeah, and I suppose gave gave you that sense of drive. Um, Did you
1: did you have a sense
0: early on of wanting of what you wanted to do when you were growing up, like early ambitions, an entrepreneur? Um,
1: No, I didn't. Do you know what that whole? It's funny because the whole like label entrepreneur, I still wouldn't. You know, it's been seventeen years of it, but I still wouldn't. I don't feel comfortable going. Yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I think you. I think you become it by default that like, I don't think there's many people who, you know, grow up and go, well, the ones I know who will say, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur, generally don't end up being an entrepreneur. Um, they, you just kind of want to fix a problem and change the world and go, well, that's not right. So I want to create something that fixes that. And by default, you then, it didn't cross my, um, I didn't cross my mind really that I could run a business and launch a business as a teenager. It was always your work for someone. But I did have a drive, a really angry drive in me to fit, to change the world and that it wasn't right. And that, you know, that started as a little girl of going, well, you know, boys can climb trees. They can do all this. They, um, you know, it's sort of I, I decided to play the trombone when I was eight because um, no other girls played it. um, Boys played it. So I was like, right, if they can do it, I'm doing it. um, And did loads of sport because, you know, you're constantly told, oh, you know, girls can't do that and boys do that. So... I think the, that driving me of that's not right. And when you say that only boys can do that, I was very much, well, watch me. I'll do that. And it, was from, it went from sport into then you move into the hormonal dating world and stuff of what boys can do and girls can't. And that's sort of, yeah, the rest is history business wise on that front. So, yeah. Um, and you mentioned a uh, love of sports. You
0: studied sports science at Birmingham University. Yeah. How did you find it?
1: Um, I loved it but I, I won the Loch Ness Monster Award two years in a row which was the least recognizable person on our course because I just didn't go to lectures because I was busy organizing the social events and I became again it was that kind of sod boys have always done it I became the first like female president of the Cocktail Society, um, otherwise known as cocksock Um, and organizing it wasn't posh at all, it was sort of three thousand people in a gritty Birmingham nightclub with fifty p cocktails out of barrels. So I loved I did love sport science and I love science I, you know, I love my sport and I am um, am a real science geek, but university to me was I was very I was the, the cross club captain, so I was organising all that side of it and then the social drinking side of it so that was uni but me, you left but bit. you
0: left with a degree yeah, oh, yeah so, I got degree.
1: so you managed to combine <laughs> I the blag, extra yeah I mean yeah. I've yeah I'm like full-on ADHD so I can just sit the night before and spend 10 hours and get a dissertation done um so yeah so I think my brain managed to pass <laughs> pass the degree for me or blag it
0: now after you left university you spent some time working in the city and it's interesting looking at some of your comments on that because I suppose in a way you were so involved with the social scene at university but yet did you find actually the social scene in the city had some negative experiences
1: yeah so I was I was doing PR so it was an investor relations that were you know there was a real social side to that and out and about you know hustling Networking, um, but it was it was a real boys' club, and that I think that it that just sort of even like I say sort of flamed the flames. It was had always been there; just added to it. So, and it was very much so. You know, I'm 44, so this is like 25 years ago and 24 years ago. Um, it was just sort of yeah, kind of the boys got the boys' club. It was very obvious, and there were different rules for them to ask. And I remember starting work somewhere, and I. got put sitting next to the boss away from the team and no one could understand why the other guy and just sort of the the comments were, you know, where well, you know, get get your legs out, you know, wear a good short skirt because I've got good pins. Um because you want to win this pitch, you know, tomorrow and stuff. It was just sort of relentless comments like that that actually made me complain in the end. And I'm not, you know, I'd live with five boy five rugby guys at university and I'm an army brat. So I can take the banter. Um but it just got to a point where it's like, no, this is actually making me feel uncomfortable they got told I could do official complaints but I'd be seen as a troublemaker and I need to think about it and did I want to keep working in the city because if I did then you know word would get round and you know because of the boys club so yeah so it wasn't it was fun but it yeah it was sort of a bit of an eye-opener back then
0: <laughs> yeah and the fact it was these things that you couldn't really do on your own terms I guess it was yeah, yeah. I mean from that point you then choose to leave the city it partly
1: for those reasons and you have a brief stint doing PR um yes yeah, so that was in that was financial PR and I actually well I kind of left I left the city and also I was kind of splitting out with a not particularly pleasant boyfriend so it was a bit of a double whammy um so decided and I trained on top of doing PR I was, I was a personal trainer as well and I trained to be a nutritionist kind of thing so I was doing that um to get extra money in the evenings and really early mornings I had clients. So I went sort of a bit full-time personal train and went out to the Caribbean for 10 months with PT out there. And then that was I kind of ran away. Um and then decided that I realized that I was running away and to get back to London. And actually money wasn't a thing for me. So I went into entertainment PR, which was you know a massive pay cut. Doing more clubs and bars and restaurants and that and out and about in town. And that's when I started helping with the PR for the erotica show. So it kind of got me seeing the adult sex industry. And again, that was sort of, well, these are all, you know, lingerie brands, toy brands and stuff claiming to be for females, but all run by men with male designers and telling us what we should be wearing and (laughs) what we want sexually and stuff. So, again, that just kept stoking, (laughs) stoking the fire of, no, this isn't right
0: in 2005 you founded killing kittens which obviously um uh the business we mentioned in the introduction and i just wanted, so what was the point at which you thought actually look, look there's nothing here catering to what you know for women by women in that sense so i i'm gonna put something out there how did it go
1: it was so it kind of seeing that erotic show and seeing the really interesting characters in this massive world that is the is the adult world and the need for it and um um, seeing that at the same time it in society and mainstream so sex in the city had come out, so you had this group of women talking about you know vibrators and their sex lives, which kind of mainstream t v hadn't had before, so you had that with the combination of and summers hitting the high streets, lay like thing you know lay low sex stories going into Selfridges, so there was this sort of and the media were kind of talking about this female sexual revolution going on um so you had all that being said, and then. But actually kind of living and breathing, being out and about early 20s in London, it was like, well, it's not happening. It's still so much shame and judgment. And I was out and about with a particular group in London where the women were very strong and very sort of sexually um, on it and totally in control and un- unapologetic. And they were like my heroes. Um, and um, we were out at a, you know a big wedding in Ibiza with all of them and hadn't really slept for about three days. And someone kind of phoned in and just said, is everyone just sat around killing kittens at the moment? So we had this conversation about, well, this means, you know, every time you masturbate, God kills a kitten. That's where they am saying this from. And I just went, right, sort (laughs) of. That's what, um, that's the name, love the name, love the two Ks in it. And just wanted to create a world online and offline, which was flip the normal society, the norms on its head, um, where the women were very much in control and there was no judgment, no shame. I think I was sort of looking back, again, as I said, that very insecure little girl, really, who kind of created a world that, a bit like when you create an avatar of how you want, you know, your to your confident version of you would live type thing and do. So I never, it wasn't about me getting involved because I was never confident, confident enough. It was this is, I wanted to create this world where, you know, my alter ego <laughs> would get and would could do it and own it and um so that's when yeah Killing Kittens was born and
0: for listeners who have not been to a Killing Kittens party how does it differ from a conventional sex party or in, in the sense of uh giving women more power
1: so I've always said it kind of the sex is a kind of a byproduct. it's sort of it's setting the scene and creating that environment and that's you know appealing to you know our biggest sex organ and women are our brain so you know for us it's a touch the feel the smell the ambience the being in the mood the um being turned on that so set this it's having events that where all of that's catered for and if if people want to have sex they can have sex if they don't they don't so it's very much there's no pressure there's no you know I have friends that come down and go it's not what they expect it's sort of you people I think people just assume that you you have to get naked you have to get involved you and they that's it they're just sort of great parties DJs all the entertainment um or masks we don't like single men in so every man in there has been accompanied by a woman so there's women buying the tickets and then they decide to bring a, bring someone or just come on their own um and yeah so that's what what it's about and you know the main rule is that that men can't approach women they don't know so it's the women making the yeah the first so that's you know how it uh, has been and then it's just sort of you know we're now on paper considered a tech business so it's really the tech and digital side of KK that is the business with the parties being sort of that tip of the iceberg that people see and know about yeah
0: and before we get to that I suppose the tech side now and of course um recent treasury investments in terms of when you were starting out how did you get the word out did you find it naturally spread people were you know coming to you for it or was it tricky in the beginning um when you're trying to say Um, you know there's something
1: no it was not it was because I was kind of out and about a lot and knew a lot of people kind of who were in that sort of sex what you call now sex positive um the sex positive kind of scene and you don't need loads of people. So like the first event, had like 40 people. The first year was one party a month with, you know, that went up to about 80, 90 people. Um, so and then just PR, you know, actually, it was sort of word of mouth. And then the it kind of I think that was part of it that made me realize that actually I was onto something. And um, because you had these big journalists from like Sunday Times and stuff wanting to write. About it and wanting, and you just went. Hang on a minute. Coming from PR, where you, it's really hard to get hold of these journalists and actually have anything written about. To suddenly them wanting to do full pages in like Marie Claire magazine or Cosmo or Sunday Times Star magazine, you go. Actually, there's there's something in society that has shifted, and um, we're kind of on the top of it. So yes, that that's it really. And even now, to be honest, because we're considered adult, you can't do. Even though you have got the tech and digital side of it, you can't do the usual digital marketing means. You can't advertise on social media. You can't boost posts. You can't. You can't do anything on Instagram. You can You know, we've had our account shut for three weeks, and eventually got it back a couple of weeks ago. And we just did. We but but we didn't post anything. There was nothing new. Or it just there. You know, it's just. As an adult brand, there is, and you have to be clever, and you can only really do kind of the guerrilla stuff or PR, good PR, bits and pieces, and that's yeah, that's how it gets out then.
0: No, you said the sex parties these days are just one aspect of it. Um, so how, how would you describe the rest of the business?
1: It being a whole sort of e- sex-positive ecosystem that, in you know, it's from social network to dating to you know we've kind of built this sort of bumble meets whatsapp meets facebook <laughs> meets Ticketmaster kind of all in one with the sex education workshops master classes all online as well so this whole kind of ecosystem which at the moment's all under kk but we're launching a whole new platform in november where we shifted the ecosystem up and kk is just one community within a much bigger um and we've got loads of other communities signed up to come in and bring all their members in um So, yeah, so that's kind of what it's, you know, the world has shifted, it's evolved, it's, you know, you can look at KK and actually, you know, people have hit it at at it being not inclusive and not diverse and because of what it stands for in the female aspect of it. And even like that, you know, female, you can't just say females, we're like, well, you know. But women what is that whole argument isn't it what is a woman um and you know it's sort of it's been identifying it's non-binary biological born women it's trans women it's sort of anyone that identifies as a woman. you have to now um if you do anything for women that it has to be inclusive it has so um it's been a bit of a minefield of keeping what it stands for whilst being inclusive whilst evolving um and that's why actually why we've flicked it to build a much bigger the big ecosystem over the top of it, where actually KK is one community and keeps its core values and keeps its rules and and then you just have lots of community sex positive communities within it who all have their own entry sort of or ethos. Yeah, but it's been it's been tricky.
0: <laughs> now we recently had Louise Perry on this podcast who has written a book about the sexual revolution and suggested um that in some ways, it was not a good way for women, and actually, the sex positivity has been bad for some. What do you make of this?
1: I don't know. i read bits on it. I think, I think the thing is, it has. It, I I'm very much a feminist that goes to me. A, a, a feminism is having the choice to do what you want to do and have those choices and have the same choices and and options and possibilities as like men do and as long as it's your choice. So if it's your choice to be in a, you know, old you know, it's not old fashioned, like the conventional stay at home relationship and marriage, which I've got friends that are and they're very happy in that kind of, you know, pink job, blue job. That's your choice. If you want to be a stripper, you know what I mean? If you want to be a high end prostitute, if you know what I mean, it's sort of if you want to be a pit girl, it's sort of to me, it's like that's the that to me, that's what feminism is about, and it's your choice to do it. I think where it's gone too far is is people and a lot of women telling women how they should think and how they should behave and and like that in kind of actually you know women sleeping around or you know wanting to explore their sex lives and yeah sleep around um and it is that that's wrong and they're only doing it because they're over the men isn't you that's I think that's wrong I think there are some women who enjoy that we have loads of members who are completely empowered and completely in control and will have sex with different people every night. And that's not them doing it for some man or to fit in with the male world. It's because they genuinely, that's what they want to do. Um, and, you know, and, and as animals, females are way more promiscuous <laughs> than, than, than men. It's actually, it's funny. Cause like the science of sex is the one science that is what is practiced Is the exact opposite of actually what the science says. And that comes down to society and like religion and politics and culture. And so it's um I just think, well, same with religion. It's just sort of let people just (laughs) choose what they what makes them tick without judgment. As long as they're not pushing them, no, they're not judging other people for their choices, then I just think that's how it needs to be. So I don't think I think the you know the female sexual revolution has been amazing in it, but if it doesn't mean everyone has to start, every woman has to be out there sleeping around and you know having one night stands and sleeping with other women and um, divorcing. It it you you do what fits you. Um, it's having that option and that freedom and that choice to be able to um, choose to do it.
0: Now your company was recently in the news when Killing Kittens was accepted onto the Futures Fund run by the Treasury what was the process when did you find out this was happening did you
1: future Fund came out and we was like this is interesting and it sort of you had to have raised I think 250 grand in like the one or two years before I think you had they had a they had boxes that you had to have ticked to qualify and we were like well we qualify for all of these so let's let's go for it um but you know, even then we were like, let's go for it. But thinking this is just the most stupid system that VCs are built where only the VCs will ever benefit from it. Um, where we're in the middle of a pandemic, people are desperate for money. And in order to get this money, you have to go out and raise money. And when you raise the money, this fund will match what you've raised. So it's sort of that makes no sense <laughs> whatsoever. To get money, you've got to raise money. So, but we were lucky in that we've got our members, we've got our community, we'd done the raises before on Cedars. So we just went back out to our community. Um, I think we raised 170 and then the future fund matches that. It government m- match that. Um, and so, yeah, so we went and did that. And it kind of only, because it's a future fund in that it will convert when you then raise in the future, it converts into the valuation of what you raise at with a 30% discount. So, it's sort of, yeah, so we did that, got the money, but then we did the raise this summer and closed it. And yeah, I knew. I was like, just wait. As soon as we close this, well, yeah, it's going to be someone. I give it till, it was on the Monday, I give it till Friday before someone, a financial journalist has clocked the fact that we've now closed it and the government now own like 1.5% of Killing Kittens Limited and sure enough on the Friday I got a call from a Financial Times journalist I was like hold on to your pants <laughs> this is going to be fun
0: <laughs> um so you didn't get to speak to Rishi about it directly?
1: Or... <laughs> no I do know though I do know that when we got it a few people kicked off and said we shouldn't it we shouldn't be allowed it within,
0: um, within government. some of this
1: yeah so I think some of the spads ran into or the snivel service as they call them um ran into yeah went into Rishi and saying we've this business shouldn't be allowed and apparently he were well, yeah he said why not it ticks every box and it pays a lot of VAT and corporation tax and it's a business so um yeah and I know like Sarah Ch- I think Sarah Champion is um she actually put it in for PMQs to stop us getting it so hmm. well, got it. Like, she was the what shadow women in equities person so you think okay Maybe you know some six-year-old male MP. <laughs> you can see have yeah pushing back, but you're yeah. But hey, we got it.
0: <laughs> You've been you're quite um on social media and other areas outspoken when it comes to views on the government and so forth. And I just wondered um we're speaking obviously now. Rishi Sunak as prime minister after Liz Truss had a brief spell, and I was struck by some of your tweets where I think obviously it's become the thing to say the Liz Trust premiership was a disaster and so forth. What What's your view
1: on it? I don't think she was given a chance. I think, and I think there's a part of sexism involved in, I saw so many comments judging her personality and and calling her thick and calling her that right from minute one. And I, and it was very clear to me, it's sort of mainstream media and like, you know, and I know Rishi's camp really went for her when it was just trusting her, Tross and Rishi up against it, and to me it was like this bully boy boys' club that didn't win. That just with their bully boy, you know, MSM um, editors. Um, they all go out drinking with just I just and and the you know and the city boys as well. Kind of there was just a lot of spoilt brat behaviour. Of people that didn't get their way and I she wasn't given a chance and to me so I you know I am a kind of a libertarian small c Tory that believes in like small government and low tax and um you know that just giving people the incentive to get off their asses and go for it rather than sit there and let the state just hand everything to them on plate so kind of what trust stood for was very and her policies is kind of is just my way of thinking and I yeah and sort of you can kind of see it now because you just look at the what happened when the pound dropped when trust started and all hell broke loose and it's it's gone as low in the last 24 hours but is Rishi getting any crap for it no he's not you know there's excuses being made that's not his fault and you just it's just i don't know it frustrates me that actually a lot of what she wanted to do and when I speak to you know I live in Staines it's very working class and actually you know most of the people the builders and everyone around me, the dad thing, liked what she wanted to do, liked the what the tax stuff, wanted supported it and they it was different ends, I had a you know big operation in the NHS hospital and the nurses and consultants were and that was the day she stepped down. They were all like feeling really sorry for her and going, Well we all agreed with her. So it just you know, when you hear that on the streets from everyone from the, you know, upper class to the working class to, that they were behind her policies and you watch the twatterati as I call them, you know frothing hyena boy card pack
0: yeah I mean I guess uh, the polling suggested that lots of people did take issue by the by the end of it um mm. but I I wonder then if you were a, a, you know a low-tax Tory if you look at the fallout from the mini budget do you just I mean it does seem as though we're moving quite far away from what you're probably like to see
1: she where I think it went wrong the communication wasn't done I think it was a lot pushed in too fast too quick without explaining how everyone would benefit from it I think on that you know I'm a communications person my background is I think I just sat there going this could be handled so much better and then people would be on board I think and just to stand up against the the pack um and yeah I just don't think she had a hope in hell really from day one and I just find that sad yeah
0: now, the final question on this podcast is when we ask um, everyone, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given? And it may well have been that you ignored them from the get-go or, or maybe you'd, you took it and now um, you regret it. Do
1: you know, I think I, as a couple, I mean, I mentioned one earlier of like being told to, yeah, not complain because I'd be seen as a troublemaker. <laughs> um, um, but also around that time was very much being told that, you know, if you wanted to get anywhere in the city, you you had to conform to the boys club be more male be more um act more you know not emotional not be more yeah just be it was that there was very much in my 20s of if you wanted to get anywhere work-wise um then you had to conform to be more boy <laughs> to be more boys club um which isn't and now it's be very apparent actually actually the whole emotional intelligence and empathy and you know f- fits in that you know the female dynamic actually makes companies much better that balance
0: (laughs) thank you very much for joining us today Emma